Welcome to the 118th episode of Two Writers Sling and Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, and the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. The music you're listening to is Croissants from the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to music critiquing to self-help to song lyrics to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's guest is Pat Jordan. The almost 80-year-old sports writer who is, among other things, the author of A False Spring, which is probably my all-time favorite sports book, a former Braves minor league pitcher, a seven-time Best American Sports Writing honoree, a guy who's written for everyone from Sports Illustrated and GQ to Harper's and Playboy, and one ornery motherfucker. In this episode, recorded at 3 a.m. Pacific time and on Pat's flip phone, so pardon the slight drop in audio, please, Pat talks about jumping from typewriter to computer. He talks about a subject calling his wife to say he's cheating on her. He talks about why today's ball players are soft and why all sports writers are pussies. So, yeah, here we go on Two Writers, Singing Yang. Uh, all right, well, Pat, are you a guy like who writes in patterns? Like, are you a guy who always has to write at night or write in the morning or write at a certain place? Yeah, or write yeah, at yeah, time? yeah. But it's what been all my life. You know, I go to the gym, come home at uh, 7 o'clock, and uh, I barely eat breakfast. But I work until, I used to work until like 2 or 3 if I was doing a magazine story. I always had deadlines, you know. But now that I'm doing books, uh, I work from about 8 to 12. The difference is, uh, I, because I started to work on a computer up until about 45 years ago, I only worked on a typewriter with yellow second sheets, you know, manual typewriter. And I tried a, t- a computer. I didn't ever want to do it. Then pretty soon I, I got into it. I was able to do it. And what I found out is if I wake up at 4 in the morning and I pull up the story that I was thinking about something last night, you know, the book, yeah. uh, I could just go there and change a couple of sentences easy. Whereas with a typewriter, I'd have to cut and paste and erase and you know, it was a whole physical process. I worked from 8 to 12, but during the day and at night and early in the morning, I might get up and just fiddle around with two paragraphs or a sentence, you know what I mean? Yeah. Wait, what got you off the typewriter? Well, I wasn't doing magazine stories anymore. I was I was always afraid that I've been doing t- typewriters since 1963 when I worked in the newspaper. And I was afraid if I got into a computer, it would it would confuse me. You know what I mean? It's like I would think about it. Like, I don't think, I think through a typewriter, but I don't think about it. But when I started to use a computer, I was thinking about the computer, and I was, it was interfering with thinking about what I was writing. You know what I mean? Yes. So I didn't want to do that when I was doing magazine stories. Then when I stopped doing magazine stories, and I started doing books, and I had all the time in the world to learn how to adjust to the computer, you know? Yeah. I didn't have any time constraints. It took me about two or three years to do that book. Still not finished. And basically, I learned how to do it on the... uh, I learned how to write on the computer with that... uh, uh, non-fiction memo I'm doing. So where's the typewriter? I got about 15 of them. It's right under my desk. It's a little manual, Hermes. Hermes 3000. Yeah, I still got it. I I once went and uh, bought all the yellow second sheets in America. (laughs) 
unlike the Bass Brothers who uh, commandeered the silver market. Yeah. They got all these thousands of yellow second sheets in the attic. Your resume is chock full of writing for pretty much every magazine and newspaper that's ever existed. And right. I think you and I have found the same thing, which is the freelance market kind of vanished and sucks and it. It's, it's just not oh, there. It is. Yeah, I mean, uh, I was talking to my wife the other day. I said, well, I started writing for Sports Children in 70. And I was doing those bonus pieces at the back of the magazine. Yeah. You know, I got a Sports Illustrated that is 274 pages long. It's like a book, like yeah. a telephone book. So I was doing, they say, well, we want 5,000 words for the profile. So I would write 8,000 words, say. And they would run it, most of it. You know, maybe 7,800. And uh, so I never had a, a word constraint. And then in the 90s, when I was working for GQ, the words got less. So now I was writing 5,000 words max. I couldn't write 8,000 words. They were going to run 5,000 only. And I had to change my writing style a little bit. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't be meandering with my senses. But then in the 2000s, and they really started cutting down. Now, now their men's journal is giving me 3,000 word profiles. So I began to use incomplete sentences to save words. You're being serious. You would just start using incomplete sentences? Yeah, yeah, just to save words. Like, like give me an example. Like, what do you mean? Okay, uh, it said, it said uh, uh, I uh, went to uh, Tom Seaver's house and I saw a beautiful great front uh, and a uh, tile floor, and I saw this and this. this. I would just say, uh, at Tom Seaver's house, I saw, and then incomplete tile floors, great front, the flowers in the pot. You know what I mean? Yeah. I would just try to cut off all those transitional words that don't mean anything. Yeah. And my wife, who edits all my stuff, just furious with me for using these sentences because in the books I don't have to do it anymore but I, I really got in the habit of trying to jam as many word, as many important words into a magazine story as I could uh, you know I mean uh, for, if I describe somebody's look uh, he had thinning gray hair and it was slightly overweight with a little paunch and uh, a pigeon toed when he walked or something like that so now with magazines would be yeah, thin grain hair, period, uh, a paunch, period, uh, pigeon toe, period. You, you know what I mean? You know, I lost that kind of uh, graceful prose, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, when he uh, was a war correspondent, and the newspapers he wrote for, Kansas City Star, uh, were cheap. And he had to send his stuff, you know, like teletype or something. Uh -huh in Europe and they charge by the word and so he had to learn how to write the same kind of thing that kind of compressed leaving leaving words out which is how he developed his style you know short short sentences simple words and uh, it's, it's sort of something I did I'm getting out of it a little bit you know I'm, I'm like a psychotic like I will if I don't write in the same place five days in a row, I'll start getting weird. Or if I, you know, like I always worry about getting in bad habits, bad streaks, something changing me, blah, blah, blah. Like, can you write in short, choppy sentences and then go right back to being the guy you were 10 years earlier? Or do you find like yeah. practicing something 
kind of room. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's a, that's no problem. At, at this point, it's, it's sort of like an aging slugger who doesn't hit the long ball as much. He knows how to, he knows how to uh, move the ball around the outfield, and he can adjust to whatever the pitcher is throwing. Whereas when you're a young kid, you just swing for the fences, say. And no, I mean I've been doing this for so long. I've been writing. See, I'm one of those guys who writes all the time. Uh, I don't just write when I have an assignment. I mean, I have a list of essays or short stories or small pieces that I write. Sometimes I sell them to little magazines for three hundred dollars. You know. Nobody even knows about it. Yeah. You know, little college magazines. So I, I just write all the time. And so a lot of times my style will change according to the subject. Like I interviewed a neo-Nazi guy uh, named Robert Miles, and he's a big Baroque guy. And I don't like to write Baroque. You know, a big six foot five, 300 pound, uh, a tough guy. I, I liked him a lot. You know, right. other than the fact that he... He was a neo-Nazi racist and Ku Klux Klan guy. Nobody's perfect. Yeah, he thought of himself as a, a Germanic legend type character. You know, like a dragon. That was his symbol, a dragon. And he was very baroque the way he talked. So I just, I just picked up his way of talking in the style. Naturally, GQ bought it, but then he, uh, his wife died. <laughs> And he called me up crying, and I said, well, they're going to send the photographer. He says, well, they're going to send it too late. And I don't know what he meant. He hung up, and he killed himself. Wow. So like, GQ never ran it wow. uh, because, he, you know, he, he was dead. But uh, my style will adjust to whoever I'm, I'm interviewing somebody. Is it okay to like the neo-Nazi? Sure. Why not? You know what I mean? Like the first story I did for Sports Illustrated on Bo Belinsky, I thought he was the biggest asshole in the world because he pissed away a career with drugs and booze and all that shit, you know? And uh, so I went out there and I told Sports Illustrated, I said, fucking guy, I said, he pissed away a great career. I said, I can't stand that. You know, I said, I wish I had it. So I went out there and interviewed him. He's one of the best guys I ever talked to. Yeah. Real angel. And he's the kind of guy that can only hurt himself. You know, self-destructive. Yeah. And I really liked him. And when I wrote the story, it was 180 degrees different than I told SI when I went out there. And they ran it. And he called me up, he, he thanked me, and that's very, one of the rare times he's ever thanked for a story. You know, and then I go on to interview people that I didn't like. I did Tom Selleck for GQ. Yeah. Now, it was my idea, because I used to watch Magnum, and I like the idea that Tom Selleck, this big, handsome guy in Magnum, always played himself as sort of a, bum, a bungler with, with women. He, right. he never got the beautiful girl. He played against his looks. And I said, well, that's a, that, that must be a good actor to, to play against his looks and always screw up with the beautiful girl and not get her at the end of the movie, you know? So I wanted to go interview him, and it turns out, Tom Selleck was the most neurotic guy, I think. I remember Burt Reynolds was the two most neurotic guys I ever talked to the first story. And, uh, I mean, he couldn't talk to me without his 70-year-old publicist, Esme Chandler, sitting in on the interview. Right. And during the interview, 
every question I asked him, he would say, well, what do you think about that, Esme? And she would tell him, and then he would repeat that to me. As, so what I did was I ran it just the way it happened. In that interview, is it okay if you said, look, man, I cannot do this interview with your publicist here. I'm just not doing this. I, I tried, yeah, I tried to get it to do it, but I, I wanted to do the interview. Yeah. I don't care. So I, I ran it. I ran it the way it happened with him asking her questions all the time. He he was totally embarrassed, and he sent letters around to different producers in Hollywood, telling them never to let me get near any of the actors. Did that have an impact in any way, shape, or form on your career? Yeah, I've had that happen. The Yankees banned me from the Yankees stadium after I wrote the Roger Clemens story. Uh, that story, it, it's called Roger Clemens Refuses to Grow Up. Fucking great story. What am I, I mean, just a great story. And um, I really wanted to ask you about this and talk to you about this. Like, you are really, really good in your stories at seeing people and laying them out. Like, uh, you wrote here a, in this story, you wrote, a, everyone is a bit player in Clemens' universe, even his beloved mother, best who reared him and his five siblings. She left her first husband as Clemens was a baby, and her second husband died when Clemens was nine. Bess has been fighting emphysema for years. Then you have a quote from him. He has her good days and bad days, Clemens says. I only hope she can hang on to see me go into the Hall of Fame. Hi. I just feel like the average profile doesn't... Like, you're really, really good at breaking down who a person is or looking at their mannerisms and taking away something from that. Like, what are you looking for? That's that's what I'm looking for, but I'm not looking for any particular thing. I mean, I, a lot of times, like I told you, I might have a set idea in my head about uh, what a character is or a subject, mm. but they're in total charge. I mean, I could, they could turn it around 180 degrees. Uh, I didn't have much of a feeling about Clemens. Uh, I tell you what, I, I told you I wrote this fever book. It'll be out in April 2020. And originally, when I this is interesting. Originally, I, I was fresh. Not fresh from baseball, but I was 30 years old. And Tom Seaver was living my life. You know, I, I mean, I should have been a big leaguer like Tom Seaver and all. But, you know, he was making those kind of comments in the press that, that were sort of self-congratulatory. And I, I, had, I didn't have a good feeling about him. I thought maybe he was a pompous guy, full of himself and all that. So I told the sports officer that I wanted to do it, Ray Cape. And Ray said, well, he's been done. Well, I said, this is 1971. I said, well, it hasn't been done by me. But Norman Mailer could do them. That doesn't mean I'm going to do the same story. So I went out. The news fever is the best guy I ever met in sport. I learned a lot of stuff from Tom Seaver. You know, it really broke my heart when I found out he had uh, dementia. It's funny. Whenever I watch, whatever, football or baseball on TV, and... There's a former player in the booth. Yeah. I always think I'm getting nothing from these people. I could do this job just as well as them. I could tell you everything they're telling you. Um, yeah. You know, you're, you're a highly touted pitcher. You played three years in the minors, blah, blah, blah. Like, what did that do for you as a writer? First of all, I understand what it means to be an athlete, especially a famous athlete. Let me tell you. Tom, we were at his house in California in 2013. And he picks up a ball. He said, "Here, Pat, this is the ball. I pitched my only no-hitter in Little League when I was in Little League. I said, big fucking deal. I said, I pitched four in a row. I said, and two of them were perfect games when I struck out 18 batters. Nobody even touched the ball. I, and he said, oh, bullshit, that's in your dreams, you know. And all. But 
when I was 12, I was on the Daily News, wrote a column about me. The Yankees got me and my mother and father to Yankee Stadium before a game and interviewed me on television. Like, what can a 12-year-old kid do? Uh, when I was 17, I, you know, I got $50,000 from the Braves, and I was supposed to be the new Warren spot. And I go to the minor leagues, and I strike out a lot of guys the first two years. One year, I struck out 10 batters a game, but I walked eight. So I was 6-12 and 12 with a 489 ERA. Then it all fell apart. The, 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 my third year, I tried to change my motion to try to throw strikes, and I got all fucked up, uh, like Steve Glass, you know? You know, I, be, I became one of those guys who forgot how to pitch. My career was over almost immediately after that. Uh, so I had that attitude that I was that I was never talking to anybody who was more talented than me. I always had the attitude that what don't I know that prevented me from fulfilling my talent that Tom Seaver knows or Roger Clemens knows. Mm-hmm. I was curious about why they succeeded. They didn't have any better stuff than I did, and why didn't I? So I always had a, a, a an attitude. Some guys didn't like famous athletes. They expected me to be worshipful, you know? So, you know, like Roger Angel told me once, he said, well, I, I talked to Bob Gibson the other day, and I went up to him, and he said, my heart was beating in my chest and all that. I said, why? So, well, you know, Bob Gibson, this great pitcher and all that. I said, well, I go up to a guy, his heart should be beating in his, in his chest, and I'm going to interview him. <laughs> <laughs> I said, he's lucky. Uh, I never, I, you know, I never grandized these guys. You've been able to skip in your career the stage where you tiptoe up and you say, um, Mr. Jackson, do you think I could get five minutes? Like, you just never had that. No, no. Yeah. I mean, I never, you know, I never, no matter who I saw, I wasn't, I wasn't a bully, but I was letting them know ahead of time that I was there at one point. I never felt I was in the presence of somebody who had had a talent that I never had. Now, I always felt that I was writing. Because I, it, it took me a very long time to learn how to be a writer, and it was a lot of hard work. The, the, the funny thing is, Tom Seaver was a very hard-working guy, and that's how he became a good pitcher. I was golden boy since I picked up a baseball, you know? Nice. And I didn't really have to work at it. And then when it fell apart, I didn't know how to stop it. So, nice. But as a writer, it was just the reverse. You know, I didn't know shit about writing. And when I decided I wanted to be a writer, I had I had a literary, I would read every magazine, I would underline, I would yellow out things to see the way writers writers created a mood or a scene or a dialogue. So I had to work very hard at it. And I mean, I didn't become successful in a sense until I was 30, but I had started when I was 22. And you're teaching English at an all-girls Catholic school in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Right. And Muhammad Ali was coming to town? Is that that's, yeah. that's the genesis? That's the, that's the first story I ever did. What do you remember about it? Very simple. Uh, a friend of mine, the, the guy who had the radio program, there was an interview on his name was Bob Ritzer. And I used to say, if I could, didn't sleep at night, <clears throat> which I often didn't, I, Bob would, would open his program at 5 a.m. You know, he looked like the 5 a.m. to 10, 10 a.m. Mm-hmm. Uh, hour. And so I would go there, and I'd sit in the booth with him, drink coffee, and when he'd go off the air, we'd bullshit and all that. One day he told me he was going to have Muhammad Ali was coming to town. And I said, shit, do you mind if I come down here? I was, maybe I can get an interview. 
Well, the radio station was in a shit area. Uh, homeless guys and winos were sleeping on benches across the street in the park, you know. And so I lay there, and he's surrounded by the Nation of Islam guys, you know, with the black ties and the sunglasses. Yeah, I'm trying to talk to him. I didn't have a tape recorder. I used a notebook. And all he's doing is, no matter what question I asked him, he gave me a road answer. You know what I mean? Yeah. He said, uh, uh, how does it feel not to be boxing? Because he, he was been suspended. He wasn't boxing. He said, well, that's a white, the white man has been, you know, and everything was a monologue. And he never answered any questions. Mm-hmm. So I had to do some writing in it. And, I, you know, I was scared. That was the first story I ever sent out to a magazine. I, I should have sent it to Sports Illustrated, but I didn't know how to do that. So I figured, well, maybe this little magazine, Boxing Illustrated, would be interested. And so the guy called me up and told me I was one of those new journalists. I didn't know I was any kind of journalist because I did a lot of scene and dialogue, you know. So what do you mean by new? You know, he's like Tom Wolfe and um, Gay Talese and all that. I didn't know who those guys were. So I went to the uh, library and looked them up, Esquire and stuff like that. And I knew it wasn't Tom Wolfe. But Gay Talese I like. So, so I said, if I'm, like, I'm, if I'm doing what Gay Talese is doing, that's not bad. You know, I got $175 for that. And then I got a, a, an assignment from uh, True Magazine to do a story on Phil Necro. He just won 20 games. And Phil was my roommate my first year, teammate in McCook, Nebraska. Oh, wow. And he was always, just, always a great guy. So I, I called the Braves. I got Phil. Hey, Pat, what are you doing? I said, I'm, doing, I'm trying to be a writer now. Uh, Phil, I said, I've got a assignment for this magazine. Uh, true magazine and I said uh, can I come down and interview he said sure so I flew down to Atlanta it was it was a rainy day we ended up at a bar talking for about five hours and I got so much I didn't know how to do it so I basically just ran it almost as quotes from Phil you know with me asking the questions yeah it was, it was really, really probably one of the worst pieces I ever did but True Magazine was thrilled they got it to the, I got paid 2500 bucks. Yeah. Uh, that's half of what I made as a school teacher in the entire year. Yeah. So um, I, the editor said, listen, I'll give you four stories a year, guaranteed. The guy's name was Norm Smith. So I said, four stories a year, mm-hmm, 10 grand? I said, okay. I said, I'll do it. So I went home, it was May, I quit teaching. I put in my resignation. So in June, I go back down to True Magazine, come in there, and there's another guy sitting at Norm Smith's desk. Oh, no. I said, where's Norm? He said, oh, uh, he got fired. I said, well, he's supposed to give me four stories a year. He said, that was his deal, not mine. And I said, I'm out in the cold. So I come home, and, and my wife says, what are we going to do? I said, well, I got $3,000 in the bank. Uh, and I had, let's see, that was 68, no, 60, yeah, about 68, I had five kids. Yeah. So I, I said, well, I'm going to write at home all summer, and after the $3,000 is up, I'll go get a job on a construction crew, you know, because I worked construction when I came back from baseball. So I said, I'll go, I'll, I'll go and get a job working construction. So she was good about it. She said, okay, whatever you think. So I started writing, and I wrote something I sent to Sports Illustrated, and Ray Cave uh, called me up and asked me to come in. 
He said, I, we can't use this. He says, but I like what you're doing. He said, uh, here's $400. Any story ideas you have, come to us first. Wow. You know, and this is what the $400 was for. Yes. So I called him up. Uh, there was a, a pitcher named Art DeFilippe from Stanford, Connecticut. Left-hander, being very well scouted. So I called up Ray, and I said, I'd like to do a, a story on the scouts, the bird dogs and all that, who who, uh, who scout these young kids, you know. I said, uh, uh, I'll go down there. And so I said, okay, go do it. So he wanted, like, 800 words. So I did a, I did a great story, but I did 5,000 words. Ray ran it as a bonus piece. And that was my beginning with uh, SI. Wow. I was very long, partly because it takes you time to warm up, you know. So I'm really warming up in the first the first week. My attitude is they can always cut it, but I hate when they send me a story and say we need you to add. Once I turn the story in, it's out of my it's out of my head. If they send me back my five thousand word story and ask me to cut five hundred words, that I could do. So I was right long. I don't mind if they cut it. Uh, I had editors who gave me outlines and what I should look for. Yeah. Same thing with that Garvey story, the Steve Garvey and Cindy Garvey story that I wrote for Inside Sports. You don't like that story? Uh, I like it, yeah. Uh, I had to redeem it. They gave the whole lead uh, to Steve Axlin to rewrite it because, uh, you know, he was writing stuff for them. They sprung it on me the day I went in to look at the, the proofs. And I said, you're not running this. This is not my lead. I said, you're going to run my lead or you don't have the story. So uh, I incorporated maybe a sentence that Axum wrote just to make them happy. You have a story, I have a story in, front of you, uh, in front of me that you wrote for GQ way back in 1990. You rode around, uh, you hung out with the porn star Tracy Lords. To kind of become an actress. And you ever quote this story? It's one of the craziest quotes I've ever seen in any story. Uh, it was, um, I met her on the set of, of Sex Fifth Avenue in 1985, says actor Paul Thomas, who was 35 yeah. to her 16. She was as yeah. as can be, a nasty little girl who enjoyed being bad. I just wanted to fuck her. How the hell do you get, and throughout, the, throughout your stories, I feel like there's a recurring theme. If it's like Steve Carlton telling you yeah. of his conspiracies, yeah. how the Jews want to take over America. How do you get some guy to tell you he wanted to fuck a 16-year-old? How do you get Steve Carlton to tell you he thinks Jews are taking over the world? Like, how do you get people to confide in you when they know you're writing a story about them? Yeah, yeah a cardinal rule. I'll tell you, I'll, I'll keep those two people in mind, especially uh, uh, Carlton. Okay. Number one, I never just ask questions. I talk to people. Right. You know what I mean? Yep. I, tell, I, I do digressions. I talk to him. I'm getting divorced. Oh, what a fucking pain in the ass it is, you know. This and that. And, then, blah, blah, blah. and the guy says, oh, yeah, well, I got divorced. It was a bitch. The only difference is he's not writing what I'm telling him. Right. I'm writing what he tells me. <laughs> so, And plus, I, I have an antenna to find out where what's going on in the guy's head. And I, you know, so I will... Well, I'll be asking questions, and then maybe I have a throwaway question, nothing question. And he goes someplace, and I immediately pick up, like, Carlton, where, where he said, I didn't know about his nutcase theories, you know, about the elder design and all that. Mm-hmm. That uh, uh, he, he mentioned something about, uh, he mentioned something about, uh, 
the, the UN black helicopters are coming and they're going to confiscate all our guns. Right? So instinctively, I knew where he was at. So I said, hey, Steve, they're not going to confiscate my guns. I got this brand new Czechoslovakian military uh, pistol, CD-85, I said. I paid $800 for it, you know, and then I got this one. And he said, oh, you you got guns too? I said, yeah. I said, I live in Florida. I always carry a gun when I go out. Immediately, he started telling me about his conspiracy theory. Now, I wasn't lying to him. I don't believe in the black helicopters. Right. But I have a lot of guns. Right. You know? Yeah. Now, I wouldn't mention that. Uh, you know, I once did Patrick Reynolds, the anti-smoking guy who's Reynolds Tobacco Company. And in those days, you could smoke in restaurants and all that. I didn't smoke in front of him. I went outside every 20 minutes and puffed on my cigar because that would bother him. But you just, you just, you got to be receptive to where a guy is going. You can see things, you know, and, and if, if you talk a lot, if you talk a lot rather than interview people, like I, I did Bill Wong, and I interviewed his wife, ex-wife, and I put the, uh, we're both sitting on the sofa, and in between us, I put the tape recorder up, and she, uh, started talking and I was talking to her about my uh, you know what it's like being divorced or, you know uh, and all this and that and she was telling me about Bill he was impossible and all I said oh, my ex-wife never spoke all she ever said is what he's have to talk and ruin things and she went on from there and told me about Bill and then when I printed it she was shocked she said I thought we were just talking I said well, we were. I said, but the tape recorder was going right there. Not like I was hiding anything from you. And the Cindy Garvey thing was the same thing. She was, uh, she, you know, actually the Cindy Garvey thing was, <laughs> I was there, my present wife, and my wife 40 years, but at that point she was my girlfriend while I was still married. Mm -hmm. And she came out to L.A. with me, and uh, she sat in the car while I was interviewing Cindy. This is 1980, I just want to say, for a piece for Inside Sports about yeah, Steve Garvey yeah. and his wife, Cindy Garvey. Right. right. So she was uh, she was out in the car, sitting there in the dark, and I told her, you came up, and I said, yeah, I brought my girlfriend. She said, where is she? She's out in the car. Oh, don't let her stay out in the car. I said, you sure? So he said, yeah. So brought in Susie. Now, Susie has just been recently divorced. So they're both sitting on a sofa. I'm on an easy chair with the tape recorder. And she, uh, so Cindy asked her a question. I said, Pat, did you just got divorced? She said, oh, yeah. My husband, I said, uh, she said it was always a sex problem. My husband didn't want to have sex. I mean, blah, 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 blah. So Cindy starts talking about how Steve didn't want to have sex with her. the tape recorder is going. Yeah. They went on and on. I didn't even, I wasn't even talking, you know, you know, and Susie didn't have any idea. She wasn't doing this to help my story because she had never sat in on an interview before. It wasn't like we were in cahoots or anything, you know? Right, right. But they were just talking. So now I got all this stuff that I'm going to use is we go back in the car. And, and the reason we got the lawsuit is my big mistake was uh, when I got in the car, I always used to use the tape recorder after an interview as a notebook. 
and I would talk into the tape, mm-hmm. uh, tape recorder, and I would talk in my usual way. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, uh, uh, which would be, you know, cursing and, you know, I'd say, this brown's not getting fucked. That's her problem, you know. A guy, a guy may carry a big bat in the field. He's not carrying it into the bed and blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm doing that, talking like that just for myself. So when we got sued, we had to turn over the tapes. And all of my quotes that ran in the story were 100% perfect. You know what I mean? But all my asides into the tape recorder, they wanted to prove that I had had a malicious reason, which I didn't. I didn't know anything about Stephen Sidney Garvey when I went out there. I thought she loved being Mrs. Steve Garvey. You know? I didn't know yeah. she didn't like it. But so they sued you for $11 million. For like yeah. Tights, what, for $11 million. What, was the, what was the basis of the lawsuit? What was the time you... Uh... Well, the basis of the lawsuit is I, I had an oral agreement that I would write a positive story. You know those old oral agreements? There's no such thing as an oral agreement, oral contract. That, that right. I was going to write a positive story. Right. Yeah, you know, and uh, I, I don't think it was a negative story. I think it was a sad story. Right. You know, I mean, I didn't come down on either of them as being anything wrong. I just thought it was a sad story of two people who no longer loved each other, you know. And they dropped the lawsuit, and then later Cindy called her husband a sociopath. So that's oh, yeah, yeah. And then they, they got divorced after six months, and uh, Cindy called up my wife while I was in Florida doing spring training and told her that I brought my girlfriend up to... Did that uh, lead to the divorce? Uh, pretty much. Wow. But uh, 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 I, should, I should have done it on my own. I, I had a problem with that. I had young, not young kids. Yeah. But I had kids who were uh, 15, 17, you know, and I had one who was 12, and I was, I kept waiting for them to grow up, get older and all. Yeah. You know how fathers do. It was a mistake. I should have, I should have, my wife and I should have gotten divorced maybe five years earlier. Right. So, in a way, Cindy precipitated what I was too weak to do myself, you know. Yeah. Interesting. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey. Yeah, so you seem really excited today. This is incredible. What? That 503 Sports is a sponsor of this podcast? And if you go to 503-sports.com, you can order all the greatest throwback sports merchandise on the planet, from hats to jerseys to t-shirts. You're right. That is incredible. No, that you have the Michael Jordan on your podcast. You really made it. What? I mean, Michael Jordan, his airness, greatest athlete of all time. I'm honestly proud of you. Oh, uh, no. My guest is Pat Jordan. He's just a writer. You're so disappointing. You know, you're approaching your 80, I think you're two years away from 80, right? You're 78? 79. I don't know. How does getting older affect you as a writer? Um, I think I'm, I think I'm a little more understanding. You know, you know, the older I get, the more I realize what an asshole I was when I was younger. You know, and sometimes I ask God, I said, when am I going to finally stop being an asshole? Right. You know, I said, I'm less of an asshole I was than I was at 30. But, I mean, is this an ongoing deal? That, you know, oh, well, maybe when I'm 85, I'll be less of an asshole than when I was 78. Well, I think I'm more understanding about people. Right. You wrote a uh, you wrote a piece for Men's Journal ten years ago. 
it was kind of, it was kind of a heartbreaking story in a way. You were you were handsome once, like a Greek god with curly black locks and luxuriant chest yeah. hairs. You still are in your mind's eye, even if your hair is so white, you look like a ghost in photographs. You look at that photograph of an old man and say, oh, geez, I look like an old man. Your friends yeah. go back. You are an old man. A young yeah. friend of your wife's, maybe 35, picks up a photograph of you when you were 38 off the fireplace mantle. Wow, she says, you were hot once. You resist the urge to tell her I still am. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. It's so depressing. It wasn't. It wasn't. Well, first of all, I'm very comfortable laughing at myself. You are. I don't have any problem. I mean, like, this is uh, aside. I have, um, uh, I had full head hair all my life. Okay. So I have alopecia, and alopecia is a, a yeah. autoimmune disease. You know what it is? I do. Yeah, until your hair falls out. Yeah. Oh, usually over a, a, an emotionally traumatic experience. So I've had it in mild forms all through my life. You know, and the first time it grew, you know grew back all the time. But I I loved I lost a beloved dog about three years ago, two and a half years ago, and my hair all fell out. Mm-hmm. I mean, all. I mean, I looked like a skinhead. And then it fell out all over my body in private places everywhere. I mean, I look like a, I look like a castrati. You know, so um, all the guys around town here in Abbeville who are bald wear baseball caps, but I didn't. And all of a sudden, people who'd seen me like a month ago with full head of hair, white hair, now see me bald as a cuboid. They thought I was dying of cancer, but I made a joke out of it. Does anything bother you? Not at all. I you know what bothers me? People's assumption about me getting older. What do you, you know mean? what I mean? No. Well, doing? they assume that you're you're not as physically fit, that your mind isn't as sharp, that uh, uh, you can't do things. Listen, I can do everything I did when I was thirty. I just can't do it as long and as well. Right. I, I lift weights. The routine I have is what I did at thirty, twenty years old. But when I was lifting sixty pound dumbbells, at one point. A barbell, uh, uh, dumbbells. I'm now lifting 35, 40 pounds. You know what I mean? And instead of working out for an hour like I used to, I work out for 30 minutes. Do you think at this age, if whatever, I'm just, hypothetically, ESPN called yeah. me tomorrow. They said, we want 5,000 words on uh, Aaron Judge of the Yankees. Do you feel like you, with an age gap of whatever, you know, 50 years, yeah. could still do as good a profile on him as you did on Whitey Herzog when you guys were in separation. Absolutely. You know what the thing is? Because I, I still think I, I, I'm a young, in my mind, I'm a young guy. I mean, if I Judd, I would find out immediately. The problem would be Judd looking at me. You follow me? Making assumptions? Yeah. That would be the problem. Right. But by the time I started jazzing, because, you know, nobody can jazz people better than me. Oh, a big, big, handsome guy like you. I, I said, I wish I was pitching against you, man. I'd be jamming that fastball right underneath your letters. I said, you'd be breaking your bat every pitch. You, you know what I mean? So I would jazz him in such a way, like I, I did one out with Berlander a couple of years ago, five years ago. We ran a golf cart. <laughs> so, so he's, you know, I, I told him I was a pitcher, you know, a century ago. 
So we're going along, and he's, he's having a terrible game, hitting the ball in the rough and everywhere. And so one of his friends drives by in the car and says, how you doing over there? I said, great. I said, uh, Justin's showing me all the scenery of the golf course, water holes, sand traps, the rough, you know, even the, the street across from the golf course. I mean, I could ask him all the way through about how bad a golfer he was. Right. And then we got into an argument over he thinks all the hitters are better today than they were in the old days. And I, I don't happen to believe that. So I would, I'd make a living off a guy who jacks up, you know, who's looking to hit the long ball. Shit, any decent pitcher in the world. He, the problem is you got all these young airhead kids who throw on 100 miles an hour, and that's all I know. Well, your question was getting older. Getting older wouldn't affect me doing the interview. Right. It would affect the interviewee who would make right. assumptions and maybe be condescending or cavalier, which wouldn't be to his advantage because I'd pick that up and I'd make him he'd look like an asshole. So I always had good luck with women. Because, you know, when I was good looking, Tracy Lords and Marilyn Chambers and Cindy Garvey, you know, they, there was always a little flirtation involved in the interview. Yeah. But as I got older, since I have a lot of granddaughters and daughters and all, uh, I was very successful doing women because I was fatherly type, now grandfatherly type. Right. It's like that. It's like that hit grandfather that you always love to go see because he he never was judgmental about you and he always always did cool things with you and that your father wouldn't do. You know what I mean? Yeah. So so I had that going, and, and, but the magazines they were only going by the numbers. Now he's seventy five. You know they sent me to do Barry Switzer. Did you read that story? All Barry Switzer and I did. We chase all the broads around the uh, around a bar. At, uh, he's seventy. He was seventy-seven. I was seventy-four. I think. They were two old duffers. I never met a broad. I didn't think I couldn't uh, get get her interested. Not even now. You got to do the receipt. We got to talk about the receiver book. Why come back to that subject? What, what subject? About Tom Seaver. Oh, the first thing is, I had no idea about dementia. I started writing the book two years ago. Just finished my my book of my father's con, and it needed more work, so I put it aside. And I wasn't doing anything for about two or three months, so I said I got to do something. So I said, "To Tom Seaver is the only thing I know that I won't have to interview anything." I said, "I've had known him since 1971. The last time I saw him was 2013." And so I said, "Let's do it." So I did it, and I really got into it. There's some great stuff in it. It, it, It's a yin-yang thing, two opposites. Tom Seaver and I are similar in a lot of ways, but there's one essential way we're not. Tom has a reporter's intelligence. He must experience something before he can understand it. And I have a writer's intelligence where I try to intuit things before they happen. I'm always trying to be one step ahead of whatever life has to offer. For example, he's got a, I have a scene in it where he gets his first sore arm in spring training. He's in a panic. And then after he got it, he explains to me how he got it. Well, my legs weren't in shape because I did blah, 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 blah. So he know how he got, well, I would have got the spring training sore arm because I would try to intuit. Well, you're now 30 years old, so you can't do the same number of squats you used to do. And you have to adjust, which is perfect for a writer. 
But what Tom had, it was great for him as an athlete. We go back and forth, and, and, and a couple of editors that didn't like it said there was too much Gordon in the book. And, and I said, well, it's really a book about me and Tom as two opposing personalities with opposing interests, opposing, you know. The basic, most common thing was we both liked each other, we both were intelligent, and we both had the same kind of personality in which we scream and yell at each other. So the book goes back and forth like that. The criticisms of it will be, uh, who am I, a nobody as an athlete, to compare myself to the great Tom Seaver? That will be the major criticism. You know, another egomaniac trip by, by George. Let me ask you a final thing. You, um... About 10 years ago, in an interview I read, I think it was in actually the forward of your book, the Q&A with your book, yeah. Alice asked you if you thought sports writers were, were pussies, and you said, absolutely, most sports writers. Yeah. yeah because they're in all the guys that are interviewing. All they want to do is go out and have a drink with them. You know, I mean, I was never in all of these guys, not because I didn't put them down, but I mean, they were athletes like I was. Right. They're no different. I mean, they went farther. You know, I mean, no. If I if I met a famous writer like Hemingway, I would be in awe of him because I think he. You know, I, I don't ever think I was in his league, but I mean, I was. You know, I was a big deal up until I was twenty years old, and then I, then I fell apart. But writers want to. I mean, I had a writer who told me in Miami, maybe ten years ago. He said, "Pat," he said, "I, uh, I got tickets to go to the." hockey game. I didn't even know that there was a South Florida hockey team. So he said, it's a sports writer, a baseball writer. He said, I got uh, tickets. We can, I got passes. We can get in the, in the locker room. I said, what the fuck would I want to be in a hockey locker room for? <laughs> you think I'm going to leave the house to go out to, to, to go get, get into uh, Number one, I don't, you know, they said, you can't follow the puck. That's what's wrong with the game. Number two, the guys are Canadians, most of them. I said, you know, uh, uh, I mean, they're all white Brits. What am I going to go into the locker room for? I mean, I told you the Roger Angel story with uh, Bob Gibson. Yeah. His heart was in his, his mouth because he was going to talk to the great Bob Gibson. Right. That's what I meant by pussies. Yeah. Most of them never played sports. How many guys do you know play serious sports? I ran track in college. Does that count? No. Everybody runs. Oh, man. <laughs> Tough crowd. Right? And it also is a negative thing because a lot of guys have a hard-on because they were never athletes, and they don't really know about these athletes. They have a hard-on for them, and they do negative stories, you know? Like a lot of the New York Daily News guys who are all Maury Allen and all those guys, Richmond and all they, they, they were always looking for the... Uh, the, the the killer quote, you know, or the yeah. quote, something embarrass the athletes. I never right. like to embarrass them. Appreciate what they do. It doesn't make them glorify in my eyes. Well, um, Pat, I can't thank you enough for doing this. Seriously, it's been great. Well, I'm glad you liked it. I want to thank today's guest, Pat Jordan, for joining me on Two Riders Sling and Yang. You can follow Pat on absolutely no social media, but there's a website, patjordanstories.com. Also, Pat's next book about him and Tom Seaver comes out in 2020. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Riders Sling and Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.